This is The Boulder Artist, conversations with impactful creatives to inform, inspire, and involve. Brought to you by the Novo Art District, hosted and produced by Becca Salisbury, recorded in the Maidlife Sound Studio, music by Hank Church, and mastered by Connor Weisberg. Hello, this is your host, Becca Salisbury. I just wanted to give you all a quick update. I will be taking a brief hiatus during the month of December. But I'll be back after the new year with some exciting updates and new episodes. So enjoy this episode, and I will talk to y'all in 2024. Today, I'm super excited to have two special guests. We have Todd Berger and Lucian Fair of Berger & Fair, which is an internationally recognized independent art and design studio based here in North Boulder. They focus on meaningful ideas, identities, and experiences, and have become well-known for their high-quality, high-impact, and high-integrity work. They've created for local businesses and organizations like BMOCA, or the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art, Rafa, Santo, the Alice Institute at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and the Apocalypse Thrift Store on Pearl Street, as well as global brands such as Adidas, Ford, and Pepsi. Todd and Lucian also started the ad-free social networking space for creatives called Hello back in 2013, but they've been refocused on their studio since about 2018. I think I'm most excited to pick your brains because of the way y'all bridge the worlds of art and design. So without further ado, let's get into it. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. We're excited. Awesome. Todd and Lucian have actually been on some podcasts before. Um, so I'm going to do my best to still convey all of the amazing accomplishments that I've been learning about y'all, but without being too repetitive um, to the other resources that are already out there. But it's kind of fun. This is not your first rodeo here. No, it's not, but it's been a little bit since yeah. we've been on a podcast, so this is cool. Awesome. So first, uh, both of you are self-taught artists and designers. How did you get to the point of consistent quality and what tips might you have for people who are just getting started and or um, who are also self-taught? Wow, that's a good question. I think, Lucian, why don't you take that? Yeah, on. consistent quality is an interesting concept. I feel like Ira Glass has, speaking of podcasts, he was on one talking about um, when you're starting and you can recognize, you can recognize the work that you want to make and at the same time, you can recognize that you're not making the work of that caliber. Mm. And yeah, how to bridge that, I'm not sure. I and think that's important, though. That's a good point, that you first have to be able to recognize the sort of work you think you want to make, perhaps stylistically, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not conceptually in the beginning, but at least stylistically, aesthetically, and then uh, begin to carve out a path and endeavor towards making work like that. I think it's pretty common for most folks, including us, to be quite derivative, perhaps adjacent to others' work when you're getting started. And as you sort of find your voice and begin to realize that you are beginning to, to make the work you want you want to make, you're, you're seeking to make, you can uh, layer in more of your own thinking, which will then sort of bend your aesthetic in a more original direction. Is that kind of? Yeah, and, I, and I'm trying to think if it's different between the art and the design. I mean, we recently had a conversation with a young designer similar as it related to design work, and we were saying, you know, specifically identities and logos. Find ones that you're attracted to, that style, and then just try recreating them to learn the mechanics of it. It's kind of like the trope, know the rules, and then you can break them. Once you can sort of effortlessly produce that style you like, you probably realize how you can start to evolve and make that style your own and start to tweak it. And I think related to that, you're, in the beginning, your tools are a bit of an impediment, meaning until you've mastered the tools, you're like, I have this picture in my mind or I made this sketch but I can't quite make it in Illustrator or I can't assemble it in Figma and so there's a learning curve you have to get over to where the use of the tool becomes second nature so you can translate ideas from a sketch or from what you envision right into the software so you're not mm-hmm. burdened by that and that 
once you get over that curve, I think making consistent work gets a lot easier. But to sort of jump ahead, I mean, learning how to make work that looks like work you thought or know you liked is sort of one piece and then beginning to develop a conceptual framework of thought where there's now ideas behind the work, not just aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And then figuring out how you translate those ideas, what devices you use. Like for us, it's composition via grid, certain typefaces, certain mm -hmm. colors, uh, certain spaciousness, mm -hmm. um, a number of other criteria that yield a sort of overall style. Mm -hmm. So I think it takes a little while to get to, but there's some clear gradual steps for sure, sort of copying tool mastery and sort of through that you'll begin to think more originally um and then once you can think more originally you can sort of begin to conceptualize and and realize that there's specific ideas or parameters or concepts i want to imbue the work with mm -hmm. and then that that gets easier with time but yeah it takes a little bit and speaking of your style um how do you think simplicity is underrated? And when, if ever, do you feel it's not appropriate? That's a good question. I think it's very often underrated. I think for a lot of people, if it looks simple, it looks easy. Mm -hmm. and like, you know, there's the, in art, the my kid could draw that or paint that sort of thought. Similarly, in graphic design, and we spend a lot of time with our clients, sometimes we have to educate them a bit on particularly symbols, that symbols better for a handful of reasons. Um, you know, the idea of a symbol is just to be a mnemonic device and simple is easier to remember than complicated. And we get, it's an easy exercise. You can say, look at, you know, what's your favorite brands, the top Fortune 100, 500 brands, think about their logo. Often you can tell someone over the phone how to draw that, and they can do that. That's kind of a exercise we go through. And so once you show them enough examples, they realize you know, there's a reason that all these major brands have very simple symbols. It's not a fluke. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's perceived similarly in both design worlds and art worlds, and I think uh, to maybe a more novice or less experienced eye simple is equated to easy or unconsidered or perhaps not refined but mm -hmm. but doing simple well is actually very difficult and simple exists on a spectrum from like a graphic symbol to a monochrome painting to a, let's say piece of architecture like we can all interpret simple a little a little differently but to to us it's uh reduction to something's essence um and that i think when done well is challenging but quite effective and and often uh underrated sometimes underappreciated mm. and I, w I wanted to ask you about um well both of you about some misconceptions that i hear regarding graphic design um i think some people sometimes think, oh, graphic design is just making something pretty or just making something aesthetic. Um, so you all have talked about the importance of, yeah, finding clients who are like-minded, who um, appreciate and value your approach and the intention that you all put behind your work. Um, so how do you find those clients or how do they find you? <laughs> Yeah, I wish we knew. <laughs> they find uh, we, us. Yeah, we don't find clients per se. We sort of wish we did. It's something we've talked about. Um, our process to sort of acquiring clients and commissions on the art side is a little bit more sort of cosmic and ethereal. We kind of focus on putting good work out into the world and being genuine uh, which is kind of easy for us because we're both who we are. There's not really much hiding that. You kind of get what you see. And um, making sure that everyone we work with, we do a very good job for. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean 
we always agree about everything with all of our clients. Our ultimate aim is to produce the best work possible we can given the constraints of the brief. Uh, most of the time, that's a very happy collaboration, uh, but not always. And um, yeah, we're just really trying to communicate our ideas on behalf of our clients when it's client-driven work and, and when it's purely our work on the art side or even on the graphic design side when we're doing self-initiated things, make sure that our voice is coming through in such a way that it's uh, unique and that when that resonates with people, a certain percentage of those people turn into clients. It's, uh, it's kind of abstract. Yeah, and I think that's putting out, you know, good work. Good work attracts good work and good clients attract good clients. So. And bad clients attract bad clients. So being able to hmm. filter out a potential bad client is something we're now quite good at, but we've had lots of bad clients who maybe considered us bad partners similarly. Hmm. Um, but, you know, in our case, a good client typically for us is uh, it's not, their first visual identity system. It's not their first rebrand. They're a little bit more seasoned. Mm. Um, and we sort of internally talk about the difference between pro and, and amateur clients. And occasionally we'll work with a, not always younger, but lesser experienced client, but that can be challenging to produce the caliber of work we're trying to produce. Cause coming back to, I think your initial question about how simplicity can be underrated if we, if the sort of educational curve is too steep, meaning if we have to communicate too much about what a good visual identity system is or how brands work out in the world, or uh, if you're gonna question our knowledge of say typography at every twist and turn through the project, like we're not gonna be able to do effective work. Mm. So there's, there's like a learning curve and an experiential curve that uh, our best clients have because they've, created multiple identity systems. They've maybe sold companies. They've been through rebrands. They've built a number of websites. Uh, they've worked for organizations that have produced really refined print collateral or signage or environmental graphics, or they've been through the process of making a book or a magazine. So it's not the first time for them often with the things we're making. And subsequently, because those people are experienced, they not only have been through the process, but they've worked with other designers and other design organizations. So mm. in our case, they often know they perhaps don't want to work with a single individual and they don't want to work with a larger agency. Mm. And we're sort of unique in that we're, we're not a single individual. We kind of work as one collaboratively, but we have a lot of combined experience between the two of us. And we, in essence, act more like a small agency in terms of the scope of work we can do or a boutique studio, but there's no bureaucracy. So our clients are talking directly to us. We're doing all the work. There's no account directors. There's no administrative. Mm. There's no layers between uh, the person seeking to do the work or collaborate or get the work done and the people actually doing the work. Mm. Um, so we can have far richer collaborations and, and conversations and uh, information doesn't get lost or confused or conflated. You have anything to add to that? Yeah, and I read that y'all aim to create work that resonates and endures. Um, and those words just struck me. What is it about work that accomplishes those things? How does work do that? It's a good question, too. I mean, that's our aim. It's not always easy. Yeah, and that's a changing world, particularly as it relates to identities. You know, some identities used to last 100 years. Mm. It's less and less the case, just in terms of corporate environment and structure rebrands are happening more often but I think being able to recognize trends and understand what is a trend now that isn't going to last mm -hmm. also helps you recognize what is timeless and timeless is always evolving and so trying to produce timeless work that isn't going to look trendy looking back oh that was clearly done in 2024 when X was all the rage. Hmm. So I think identifying trends, learning what maybe to avoid those trends or when to embrace them. Some clients that is appropriate hmm. um, more and more with these digital product 
and short life cycles, sometimes trendiness is... Yeah, and through the, all of our client-facing projects start with a pretty initially broad and then rather uh, deep and narrowed strategic uh, brief. And then we refine that brief through a series of questions and discussions and uh, iterative kind of thinking sessions. And so to Lucian's point, it will become apparent if being a bit more trendy mm. is more appropriate. Uh, most of the clients that are coming to us, that tends not to be the case, but uh, sometimes it is for sure. And then we have to discern like where we want to be on or where we want to strive to be on some trend, on some spectrum of, of trendiness per se. But not all, particularly talking about identities, not all identities are made to last forever today purposefully. Um, even kind of 10, 20 years ago, things were quite different. 30 years ago in particular, like in the going further back 50 years, like in the 60s, 70s, like when you made an identity, you thought it would last forever. And like the most aspirational companies were looking to be around 100, 150 years, maybe longer, right? So um, designers in those eras were trying to make things that really could potentially last. And we embrace that thinking and mm -hmm. appreciate that thinking and when appropriate aim to create symbols and marks and identity systems that can do that. Um, with our artwork, it's a little different in some ways easier. There's not a set of client objectives in the way. And I guess one could look at our art and say, this is trendy or that's dated on that spectrum of trendiness to not trendy. But um, I guess that's pretty subjective as, as far as it goes mm -hmm. with regards to looking at art. And we're confident that when we communicate our ideas through our art, we're doing it in a, I'd like to think, refined enough way and uh, through a considered enough process that the, the work will hold up. At least that's how we, we feel today. We'll, we'll see what happens uh, as more time goes by. And when you're working on a project where you do want to leave room for it to evolve or change potentially, how do you do that? Yeah, that comes up a lot too, building in flexibility. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of clients, you know, pivoting is a big word in the tech industry. So sometimes you kind of need to leave some flexibility in the system because their product might not stay the same for who knows how long. Mm. So that's generally a conversation with the client. And when we're presenting, we show them the doors that we've left open. And often by leaving those open, it just means that we're not locking them down. We're not specifying everything that we necessarily would at this point in time. And for example, like if we're going to design you a symbol, and right now your organization is based on three pillars of X, Y, and Z, and you make a product or a widget that does a b and c and they're like well we really want the three pillars and the a b and c in our symbol mm. we would recommend against that for example mm. because the product may change so the a b and c may go away and if we can discern that the three pillars are legit and valuable and those aren't going to go away then maybe those are arguably uh criteria or elements to figure out how to how to fit into a symbol and and perhaps quite abstractly because we can already tell that this organization may go through some change. And so if we're trying to make something that's going to last, we've got to build in that adaptability or flexibility from an interpretation perspective. So we can't be so necessarily didactic in the graphics um, package per se. Mm -hmm. But it's it's something we kind of discern through that uh, strategy work we do as we're, we're going into a project. It's interesting too because we have multiple bodies of work within our artistic catalog of of the types of ideas we like to communicate and all of that work is has a conceptual framework but it's all pretty open and flexible so we can kind of push it and tweak it and take it wherever mm. we see fit at, at any given time you don't have as much freedom when you're working on behalf of a client perhaps but you can you can create spaces to, to be more flexible and adaptive. 
And on your website and in a couple other interviews, I've heard y'all mention this search for meaning. Is there anything you've discovered during that search? Well, the search goes on. <laughs> um, it's a broad question. Yeah, anything we've discovered. I mean, we're, I think all of us, right, on a pretty meta level are, are trying to make sense of the world. And it's a pretty chaotic, cluttered place. When you start talking about brands, it's a maybe even more cluttered, chaotic place with lots of seeming similarity and, and differentiation in there. And so, but all of the organizations we work with at the end of the day are comprised of a set of people and all those people are unique. And when they come together, their ideas tend to be quite unique. And so we're trying to derive what's most unique about those people behind those organizations and then design systems to help them communicate that. And, and through that process, that's one of the processes we use to make some more meaning in the world. And if it's done well, we can help a group of people with good values and good intent and good ideas uh, execute something ideally that's important and valuable to the rest of the world and then be the people that make the symbology and the systems that help communicate those ideas so people understand actually what's happening at those organizations and, and that we can empower those organizations to be more effective in the world and to accomplish their goals and have a greater impact. So. Mm. It's a bit of a of a sort of auspicious uh, loop working with a client, and so we're trying to find the meaning in that process, and then create systems to help communicate that meaning. and And through that process, every time we grow as individuals, we learn a little bit more about the world, and our approach to meaning making evolves and adapts uh, a little bit. And so then we can parlay that, and this is kind of a good segue into our, our contemporary art practice, we can parlay that thinking into our artwork. And so through our different bodies of work and the different mediums and materials we're working with, we're trying to take often abstract ideas that Lucian and I have and share um, and then turn them into a piece of work to communicate them not always so clearly, but just to put them back into the world in a new way so that people can uh, attempt to perceive those ideas. And just through the questions the work poses to a viewer, they may the viewer may open up new doors to their own perception, new ways of thinking, and, and potentially create new paths to meaning-making. So uh, while it's a bit abstract, though, whole studio is is really about meaning making and and at its core going one layer deeper i think our whole studio practice is really about identity and exploring our identity and communicating our identity and then uh helping clients to explore their identities and, and communicate uh, what what their identities could be and what they might represent and what they could represent in the larger context of the of the branded world to to achieve their goals and have an impact. Mm. Is that kind of get at? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think so. Y'all have collaborated as one entity and shared authorship across all projects for many years now. I find this really interesting. Um, so I want to know what happened between you two to decide to mend practices so intimately and with so much uh, commitment um, or like how did you know that you were so compatible as business and creative partners good question I don't know that anyone's ever asked it quite yeah. like that but Lucian why don't you well, we're going a, on we're in our I think we're nearing our 21st year so it's it's been a while of working like that right and that's what I was going to say it's been a long process I don't think it was necessarily an immediate thing like I started working with Todd as an intern when I was in high school here in town at Vista High School 
And we've been through many iterations of the studio from small to medium-sized agency working with big Fortune 100, 500 brands via other larger ad agencies. I think during that time, that was sort of, that was the studio right before Burger and Fair. There's been three graphic design studios in name. I think during that process, maybe clarified that the best work and our favorite work was when we were working together. Mm-hmm. And that sort of all the stuff around it was less fulfilling. And making the decision to close that studio, open up Burger and Fair, kind of take the lawyer approach of put our names on the door, mistake in the ground that we're not, or intentionally not growing. Mm. We called it right-sizing at the time. But again, I don't think there was like an aha moment. It was just years and years of working together. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to reflect and go back maybe even a little further. So I kind of recall meeting Lucian and immediately recognizing, let's see, like the, his talent, his passion, his focus, his consideration – um, his trustworthiness. So there's like certain criteria that make a good partner. I'd already had a couple partners by the time I met Lucian. Mm-hmm. And at this time, we weren't necessarily thinking about uh, shared authorship per se in that context. But I think you recognize certain characteristics in certain people. And of the handful of characteristics I just listed, uh, you don't always find that exact set in everyone, plus a special sort of, mm, not a will, but an ability to make things happen in the world, which I believe I have too, which is a unique capacity to sort of hold a, a vision and then project your energy towards something and realize that thing. So we, we shared that. We shared a lot of, I think, core values. Mm. And so over time, those values were strengthened. But to his point, through the various iterations of the studio, the best work we did was the work we intimately collaborated on. And um, that became more and more apparent. And then because we gravitated towards collaborating with one another, even when there was more people in and around the studio, our system of working just naturally got more and more refined. Mm. Um, And then I think we always shared authorship on behalf of the studio, but I think the more gestalt idea of shared authorship kind of arose. I'm trying to think, I mean, it goes back pretty far now. It's trying to think what art, what artworks we were working on when that really, it kind of goes all the way back to manifest hope maybe. Yeah. Well, cause I can remember Todd had a solo show as Todd. And, uh, I remember the night, I think it was the night before it opened. Both of us stayed up all night and I was helping the physical process of finishing the work. And while it was Todd made the work, I was still there Mm -hmm. physically getting the work done. And I think that was maybe the last sort of solo show. And I know the shared authorship. Only and last. Yeah. I mean, I'd been in only solo show of my own. I'd been in group shows. I think uh, it seems like an odd thing in the art world, the shared authorship between two people. But I think it's actually the design world that made it feel natural to us because, you know, as graphic designers, you practice commercial work. But even within the graphic design community, often there's poster not competitions, but you invited to these different projects to produce work without a client, which very quickly becomes artwork in our mind. And so operating and making that work as a studio to participate, because we had done that for so long, I think it became very natural to do that in a more fine art practice. And it doesn't feel strange to us, but yeah, it kind of blows people's minds a lot. They don't they don't quite understand the shared authorship when it comes to fine art. And, and then thinking about it a little deeper, it's pretty empowering. Like I think it's common for a solo artist, and these are things we've just mitigated or avoided, not by design, but because of how we've chosen to work together. Uh, a solo artist will find themselves stuck or or 
where do I go or what do I do next? Like that's people always ask us like, you're making a lot of work. Like there's a lot of ideas and it's like, there's no shortage of ideas between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm in a lull, Lucian's got ideas. If Lucian's in some sort of lull, I've got ideas. So we've got like a backlog of ideas. And then so as it really, and, and not just ideas, but ideas that come with like uh, pretty refined conceptual thinking that could be parlayed into a body of work or a, or a way of a way of uh, approaching a body of work uh, to be determined often, right? But so that dialogue's running and, and so that's really empowering and simultaneously uh, I think an individual artist, there's a lot of ego involved in making the work and like self-definition through the work you're making, which we certainly experience. We're to some degree defined by all the collective work we make, but uh, all of the work we're making is presented by one of us. Like Lucian presents a concept to me. I present a concept to Lucian. Occasionally we sort of uh, converge in some very synchronous moment and we seemingly have the same idea, but that's more rare, right? So when you're working with someone else and you're sharing authorship, you have to suppress your ego, let it go, put it in the background, which feels healthy and good. And sometimes like Lucian's got a good idea and I'm just like, let's go. Or I have a good idea and he's like, let's go. And then so then through the that point of inception where one of us presented the idea, we then develop the work together. Um, but we've sort of got two minds working as one, but before we come together, there's kind of a multitude of ideas. So it's this relinquishing of your ego and the sort of perpetuity of idea flow that I think is really valuable. And, uh, and it's extra fun and rewarding making work like that. Like, I don't think a lot of people would be comfortable letting go, knowing that their partner perhaps made more of that piece than they did or, or vice versa. Um, but we, we like that. Mm. And, uh, we also like making serialized work. So like bodies of work with sometimes subtle variation, limited variation, sometimes more broad variation, but in, in producing it in a volume, like 10 of these or 20 of these or 36 of these or 50 of these, and not, not just screen prints, like different works. And so having two people, mm. uh, to move through the work like that can be advantageous. But yeah, it's a little a little different and a, it's kind of a perpetual work in progress, but it comes pretty natural to us. Yeah, I think the design practice really sort of trained that because I think that with a client, and often we only present a single solution to a client in terms of a logo anyway, but before that single solution has been presented to them, we obviously have our own ideas. You know, at some point we're going to embrace even if the client sees multiples, only one is going to live in the world. So one, I think that process, like Todd was saying, getting rid of your ego, not caring who, who conceived the idea that ended up being final isn't important to us. Mm. It's just the work. So I think it's actually the design studio that really helped train that working. Yeah, philosophy. and when we present ideas to clients, it's not like this is Todd's idea or this is Lucian's right. idea. It's like this is our our thinking. And... And the whole concept of Burger Fair as a studio, the studio is technically called Burger and Fair. We think of everything that the studio makes as, as work by this person named Burger Fair, which is like a individual that's the sort of combined thought and abilities of, of Lucian and I. So our aim is always to put out this sort of uh, singularly focused work that doesn't necessarily feel explicitly like him or explicitly like me. It's just the byproduct of the studio. And in theory, all of our work should feel like that, our, our work mm-hmm. for our clients uh, and, our, and our work for, our, for ourselves. Mm. And it's surprising how many times, especially with the artwork, that physically having two people seems almost critical. And I, other people have studio assistants, and that's how they get around some of those limitations. But a lot of the work we'd make we couldn't actually make by yourself. Or it would be much more difficult. Yeah, maybe someone could, I don't know how to do it. So y'all already started touching on this, um, but as I mentioned in the intro, I'm fascinated by how y'all interact between art and design. So I just wanna open up the conversation to like, what what do art and design have in common? 
what makes them different? How can they benefit one another? Um, how can we blend the two? Cool. Any of that? Yeah, I think the differentiation for us, design, there's a brief and constraints provided by a client. There's a clear, there's a clear objective. Right. And we're working, you know, outside of ourselves on their behalf. Mm. Artwork sometimes will apply even more constraints than in a client project, but they're self-provided. So in some ways they're extremely similar. They have constraints, they have an end goal. It's whether they're an externally provided objective or an internally provided objective. And the objective with the artwork can often be much looser. Yeah. Um, however, the two, we believe, uh, live in a sort of really wonderful dialogue together and, and, and each serve one another, um, at least in our studio. That may not be the same for everyone else, but also, uh, and I'll try to elaborate on that, the art side of our practice is like, uh, it's obviously beyond a way to blow off steam, but when you're spending a good majority of your time working on behalf of clients and you have lots of ideas, and in our case, in particular, we like to make physical things. Particularly now, a lot of the work we make is explicitly digital. And by the very nature of how the information economy works today, a lot of it just disappears. Like we make it all, it goes out into the internet ether, and then it goes away. A lot of the collateral. Now identities, the reason we like making identities, symbols, visual identity systems, they tend to last a bit longer. But um, when you make physical things, they don't go away. They last forever and they're uh, mm. much more arch archival. But being able to uh, hold these sort of artistically abstract ideas on one side of your brain and these very... Um, less abstract, more didactic, uh, functional communication ideas on the other, and then trying to figure out how to bridge those two in a unique way that's both aesthetically pleasing, feels culturally relevant, resonates on some deeper human level, and communicates is the thing we're always trying to do. And so... Having one foot in the art world, I think, frees up that thinking a bit. And similarly, having one foot in the, to oversimplify communication design world, uh, brings interesting constraint and frameworks to the art side mm -hmm. of our practice. So internally, we talk about that dialogue a lot, how one feeds the other. And, and vice versa, and uh, perhaps that thinking is unique, and it's, uh, we like to think it's part of what, coming back to like defining a style or what your work looks like, like it's, it's in theory a big part of, of how our work looks and how our work feels, that dialogue between our contemporary art making and our contemporary graphic design work and process. Yeah, and I think on both sides we're experimenting and pushing the boundaries in their respective fields. Mm -hmm. And often we'll learn maybe new techniques or different things that can influence one another. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not always like a one-for-one -one aesthetic. This painting now can be a this painting look now can be applied to this identity. It's less so that. I think it's more little techniques you stumble upon while you're trying to push the edge of the discipline you're working in. I think that can get cross-pollinated. Yeah, and we maybe, we were lucky that uh, Massimo Vignelli, who's a very significant, famous, just designer in general, but in particular a graphic designer, became a bit of a mentor at the end of his life. But 
he has an idea of philosophy that like, and we maybe buy into this too much sometimes that if you can design one thing, you can design anything. And, and we sort of apply that thinking at large to everything we do from our studio to the furniture in our studio, to the way we, the storage systems in our studio, to the graphic design we do, the website design we do, the print collateral design we do, the packaging design we do, the artwork making uh, that we engage in. And so I also believe that that holistic like designer mentality is of real value, particularly when you push it to the far edge and you, and you bridge it with some artistic thinking. Mm -hmm. um, it's maybe one thing to just design things and it becomes slightly another thing when you layer in uh, the liberating kind of conceptual thought that comes with making contemporary art. Have either of you experienced burnout? And if so, what advice might you give to others going through it? It's good. The only time I've been burnt out was when I'm clearly doing the wrong things. And so in, in that case, that would be when, you know, we incubated, you mentioned Ella, we incubated this uh, startup, but initially it was just a concept to build a better alternative uh, social platform for creatives on the internet. And that quickly turned into a startup. We raised a bunch of money and we had a big company. And at some point along the way, I ended up having to become the CEO of that company. And so I was in a role that I never sought for myself, engaging in activities that I really never wanted to be engaging in. And uh, it wasn't, the role didn't necessarily cater to my core skill set. Mm. And so I think anytime anyone finds themselves doing things that they're not perhaps naturally great at, and when they know there's other things that they're quite good at that they enjoy doing, but now you're stuck doing something else, mm. uh, that's sort of a path to burnout. And I realize we're in a really fortuitous position where we get to go to work every day and do things we're both good at and that we enjoy very much and that are quite fulfilling to us. Um, so when you know what that feels like, and then when you're on the other side of the fence doing things that are actually quite difficult that you don't enjoy, that kind of becomes a recipe for burnout. So I certainly experienced burnout in that process and near the end of the Ello journey, just couldn't wait to get back to our, our small little studio. Yeah, I think that our dual practice maybe almost protects against and guards against burnout. Particularly, we're a year now into our new studio. We've always had separated art studios and design studios physically, just the way the physical spaces worked out. You know, we never really had that much room in our design studios that were downtown. Mm -hmm. We would probably do too much art in them and stink the whole place up with spray paint and stuff every once in a while. But now we're up north and it's a f combined design studio in the front, art studio and gallery in the back. So we can, for the first time, really fluidly move between designing and then getting up and finishing a painting in the back. So I think we're in a really good position now that, yeah, if you're ever not feeling the task you're doing, there's always something else to be doing in the other room, mm -hmm. whether it's you just fucked up that painting and you're kind of bummed, so now you can go work on the perfectly precise computer or vice versa, you're you know, feeling it in your hands from clicking too much, you can stand up and, and go work. And it's a, a really good question because, like, I mean, you say, I think, Lucian, you said that maybe the dual practice is the reason we avoid it, but it definitively is, and I think we know that, and we don't talk about this often, but we built the practice mm -hmm. to work in such a manner. It's funny being asked that question because I don't think about that at all anymore. I'm like... I'm often in turn, my, my internal struggle is that I'm, I tend to be too inspired on both sides. There's too much graphic design stuff I want to do and there's too much art stuff I want to do and we can't do it all. Like we've got client objectives and agendas and we've got the current artwork that we're working. Like we always struggle with, we're in a body of artwork or a series of paintings or a series of prints and by the time we're a quarter to a third of the way through it, one of us or both of us has the next work we want to be working on and I think something that we both share is like uh, we 
are very interested in seeing the final outcome of all the work, be it graphic design work, a visual identity system, a website, a painting, a print. But our whole practice is very much process and materials oriented. Sometimes the materials are literally the computer and a screen and a digital interface and what you can do with, with software on a and, and yield on the internet on a backlit monitor, let's say. But on the other side of the practice, the materials are wood and canvas and paper and ink and toners and paints and other uh, other sort of mediums from resins to power tools to et cetera, you know. So um, being able to navigate both of those worlds um, is valuable and it. I think it's sort of the recipe to kind of avoid burnout, at least for us. So I know y'all both come from backgrounds with skating and biking and um, playing outside in different forms and capacities. Um, do you ever find it hard to focus living in such a beautiful place because you just want to go play outside and here in Boulder, Colorado, every day is a beautiful day. <laughs> Have you found a balance with that? Um, for me personally, no. Like I enjoy both equally. And I think there's something about having our own studio. Like we both have partners that we live with and our houses can only be so perfect based on their constraints. And our studio is like, the perfect physical place to be. So it makes it very enjoyable for us. Working remotely over the pandemic was actually super strange and bizarre for us. So like I ride my dirt bike every weekend, but I'm stoked to get into the studio on Monday too. Nice. Yeah, I think we found a pretty good balance. I mean, there's like yesterday I was thinking like, fuck, it's... I'd like to go on a run right now. It's, like, real nice, right? Um, and that happens all the time, and that's just sort of, I mean, I think most days in Boulder feel like if you have kind of outdoor-geared athletic interests, there's always something kind of rad you could be doing. Um, but, no, I think to Lucian's point, like, we love being in the studio, I love being in the studio. So I often feel like it'd be great to go on a ride. It'd be great to go on a run. It'd be really cool to be fishing right now. Um, but I'm stoked on, on what I'm working on. And so we have to manage that. Um, I have a couple kids now. Lucian's still a little more liberated than me. So my like ride time, run time, live fishing, whatever the things are that I'm doing, they have to be like very sort of rigorously fit in. So the counter to that is that I very much appreciate them when I get to do them. I used to have tons of time to do all those things I really loved. And um, in some ways, I enjoy some of it more because I appreciate it more. And uh, I get to use that time to reflect on how lucky I am and we are that we have this studio and we get to show up and do this work that we love every day and go on this exploratory creative journey and at the same time while it may not be as much time as we'd like to ride our motorcycle or like go on a trail run we do get to do it and in some ways it maybe makes it a little more special mm -hmm. so it's definitely uh it's a process that requires both constant vigilance and uh some philosophical adaptation to be content i guess <laughs> part of being a boulder right <laughs> yeah, well said. What does it mean to keep Boulder weird? It's almost a touchy subject. I mean, throw something out there to start. <laughs> it's always evolving. You know, so I'm born and raised in Boulder. So I've seen Boulder for the last 35 years. And I'm sure my perception of early Boulder when I was growing up was already someone's um, bastardization of the boulder that they saw when they first came and it was only hippies or whatever, right? So it's always this evolution and I'm totally okay with that and understand that and 
both of us now don't live in town. We live. I live in Lyons. Todd lives up in the mountains. I used to live up in the mountains before Lyons, and we sort of come in. And even now, we work on the outskirt of town, mm. as opposed to downtown. So coming in to downtown is almost a novelty. So I think our relationship with Boulder is also evolving and maybe changing based on the current climate. But I mean, I'm guessing you know, we started to keep Boulder weird. We had pens and all these different things. And we had sort of a program that we never rolled out where we were going to find, you know, sort of these OG businesses that have been around for a long time. And we didn't obviously invent the idea of keeping Boulder weird, right? Right. Just, yeah. I'm from Austin. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You, you know where the concept's founded. Yeah, it's uh, right. Like Boulder and Austin share that kind of. It's a recurring Definitely. feeling, I think, when people live in small, desirable communities sure. that have traits. You know, for us, the outdoors, the political climate, whatever it may be, and lots of artists at one point in time. When you feel an influx of people in tech or whatever it may be, I think people this yearning for keeping it weird. Mm. Um, is, is natural. Yeah, I think there's a default homogenization that's happening. To Austin's certainly experienced, Boulder's experienced, like the uh, growth of the natural foods industry here was sort of a kind of pathway to the tech industry, if you will. There was a lot of money coming into that industry, and so there was more venture capital at play, and then there was sort of in and around that, the outdoor industry kind of to come up, started to come up in Boulder. And so there was more money coming into Boulder to support that. And now we've got this big natural foods industry and this big outdoor industry. And we have this place that's really beautiful with clean air and clean water and wicked trails and uh, killer climate. And it's sunny 310 days out of the year. And so it became a really interesting place to live. And so for companies thinking where they should base themselves to give their employees a really high quality of life, right? It, all of a sudden, like, Boulder got put on the map similar to Austin. And uh, and at the time, it was like, it's still a very liberal place. Um, but I think, I'll pause for a sec. We often talk about, in our studio, like, art is the great gentrifier. Like, uh, when, when physical communities, like... Uh, urban areas are sort of fallen by the wayside or underdeveloped. Art tends to be one of the first things that moves back into those communities, largely because artists can afford to live there. People that are sort of singly focused on making and their craft and not really worried about making money need to live somewhere that's affordable. And then so they start to make a lot of art and then that attracts more artists and there's art everywhere. And now that community becomes really vibrant and really interesting and puts off a certain ethos and vibe that becomes attractive to lots of people. Um, and then the, the people that tend to follow from that tend to have very different interests and sort of waves until all of a sudden it's like by and large financial people like are just building businesses or investing in things. And so the fabric of these cities and these cultures tends to change from often these very sort of lefty, liberal, on the fringe creative types to maybe they're still on the left trending towards a more libertarian type, but they're definitely focused on different agenda and different things. And so the culture and fabric of a community changes. And so I think to us, it's just we keep bolder, weird by doing what we do which is having this, what we think is a somewhat unique practice where we get to wake up and show up every day and put our ideas forward in the world. And, uh, and in so doing, like, you know, we have a pretty rigorous set of criteria to kind of filter the clientele we work with. So we believe we're only working with good people with good ideas, doing meaningful, valuable things to the world. That to us feels like a very older idea and a way to keep Boulder weird. And now I think most people think they're doing good things for the world. That gets a little subjective, right? So I don't want to get on a high horse about that, but that combined with our, our art making and our appreciation for, for nature and the other organizations and people in the community that we support um, and the activities that we support, like we think that's one way you can contribute to keeping Boulder weird. And I think the just one final thought, like relating Austin to Boulder, like when a place gets too expensive to live, mm -hmm. it by default gets less weird um, because you can't bring in people 
people with really alternative atypical ideas can can't afford to start their career or or hang out in a place that's just too cost prohibitive mm-hmm. so places end up getting more homogenized by uh people of a certain caliber of wealth who tend to all think the same and act the same and uh want mm-hmm. the same things and then what made the place weird um sort of gets squeezed out a little bit and Places get less weird. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be politically correct <laughs> too. Well, yeah. Thanks for um, diving in there because yeah, I know that was kind of a, um, like you said, potentially delicate, uh, open-ended question. But um, yeah, and we're aware of all like like the positives and negatives to that. Mm-hmm. Like we founded a startup in Boulder. We raised venture capital in Boulder. We like took advantage of that ecosystem, but we thought we were doing that in a Robin Hood sort of way where we were like building a product, particularly with Elo, to give back to the global creative community to make something better. And I think it's safe to say what we were doing with Elo, at least in its inception in early days, was pretty legit weird. Um, and and sort of definitely true to kind of those early ways of thinking in Boulder that that we appreciated Lucian, you know, he's 35, he's been here his whole life. I've been here 30 years, so I've seen these waves and transitions too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we try to embrace that old school mentality to some degree. And, and another thing like that we often talk about is like we used to trade with a lot of people just in a barter capacity through the studio. Like we'll do this work for you, you do this work for us. That's become harder and harder to do. Less and less people want to behave mm. like that, I think. Um, it's just easier for people to be like, I'll pay you X, you do Y service for me, but we're still, and that feels like an older kind of, uh, more hippie fringe way of operating, but we enjoy it because there's a different level of trust and consideration required to work in a barter capacity with people that I think we've lost societally. So we have these contracts that are largely they hinge on and they're constrained by exchange of money, right? Rather than services and to trust that I'm going to give you something valuable and you're going to give me something valuable in return. And we're going to manage that relationship over many years. Uh, it's, uh, it yields a deeper relationship and it's more, it's just more complex, but it's uh, far richer. And we have lots of relationships like that in town and some of our best friends have come through relationships like that um which is which is cool Mm. yeah i love that all right so to wrap up um just want to open it up to what are you guys working on what are you inspired by is there anything you want our listeners to know about yeah we have a group exhibition it'll be the first exhibition in our new space up north which is 1501 Wee Hill Drive, Unit 16. And we're showing with our good friend and uh, previous barter client, Jamie Kripke. <laughs> it's a photographer, now fine artist. So we'll, um, we'll both be showing bodies of work and then hopefully having a couple of collaborative pieces. And that's on December 9th. Yeah, so that's cool. We're deep in that body of work for that show. We're both making mono prints, original one-off types of prints, Jamie and us. Uh, another close friend, uh, artist named Andy Milner, who lives in St. Louis, Missouri, is coming out to host a talk between Lucian and I and, and Jamie um, earlier in the evening. So the opening's gonna be at seven. We're gonna have a talk from 5.30 to 6.30 and then and then the exhibition. So that's cool. That's, you know, we've been in that space for a year. We've been working towards our first exhibition in there for some time. So it's cool to do it with Jamie. We've shown work with Jamie once before. We're excited Mm -hmm. to do it again. We love his work. It's complimentary to our work. Um, We actually have a whole nother body of work related to uh, access to assault weapons and gun violence and mass shootings. That's mostly complete. And that is a bit more serious, headier exhibition. And that's also going to be in our space on the, on the heels of this exhibition at some point, uh, probably, um, and looking at it now, probably early spring. And then in between that, uh, we collaborate with uh, 
women, particularly Lisa and Christina and Pearl up at Mercury Framing on uh, framing all of our artwork. We're having an exhibition in their space in I think February or maybe it starts end of January. Um, so that body of work we haven't started yet, but we have some ideas on where we're going to take that. So we've got a few new bodies of artwork happening that feel really good and we're psyched to have some folks over for an exhibition. And then we've got we're in the midst of some really interesting client work um, through uh, a client of ours, uh, organization, a blockchain-focused organization who's really centered on uh, digital property rights and sort of what an autonomous future looks like for the individual as it relates to owning more things in a digitally connected world, particularly owning more digital things. We're getting to do a lot of great work with them on the, the art side of their business, which is through an exhibition gallery uh, website called Feral File. And um, that's really exciting. And then in collaboration with Bitmark and Feral File, and they currently make uh, another app to custody digital assets, particularly NFTs, digital artwork. They're collaborating with MoMA, and so we're in the middle of that collaboration between Bitmark, Feral File, Autonomy, and MoMA, and we're designing uh, all sorts of things for what's called the MoMA postcard, which actually... Yeah, today is actually the public launch, today. so you can go to moma.org slash postcard to participate in the project, and basically you get to make this digital postcard, design a stamp, send it to a friend, 15 stamps will finish the card. The idea is the... Each time you send it to a friend, it's calculating the distance. And so there's a leaderboard of which cards have made it the furthest. And the, the de design of the stamp is just a square pixel grid, 10 by 10 uh, grid that uses the MoMA color palette, which is 15 colors. And just in the pre-launch time, seeing sort of beta testers and whoever using these cards, it's been amazing to see what people are coming up with on their stamps. Yeah, so that's a really cool project. Uh, people should check out feralfile.com to see what's happening in like the at the leading edge of the digital art space. Um, that, that company is is co-founded founded by some really some really bright people, um, and they're just doing some amazing things as it relates to to digital art. So that's been really cool to get to work with those folks and. Uh, work on that project. There's quite a few projects happening outside of art in the studio. Um, what else? What else is interesting and exciting? We've been trying to do First Fridays, just opening up our studio, design and art studio. Um, some months we forget to add it to the Novo calendar, but uh, we're trying to make that a consistent thing. So. Yeah, because now there's always artwork in progress, and we've got the gallery in the studio, so there's always art hung. So that's cool to just stick around late on Friday nights and work on whatever and see who, who comes by. So that's been fun. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, yeah, we're just... It's crazy that we're almost a year in the space, and we're pretty settled. Like, when we were... It was a big distraction getting... It was a big challenge and a distraction getting to where we are now because like, we had to find the space, obtain the space, build out the space. And so in doing all that, we weren't making a lot of art. We were doing our design work because in some ways it was easier and more natural to get done, uh, particularly during COVID remotely. Like our art, our body of art really took a hit in terms of both output and progress during COVID because for various reasons we were working remote and not together and so to produce our art we have to be in to produce our art optimally we have to be in close proximity to, together but we can actually work on our graphic design work uh remote quite effectively so um doing all those things and getting to the space and getting the space dialed uh was was a challenge but it was exciting but now and that whole time we were really aspiring towards wow this is going to be fucking great when graphic design studio set up, the art studio set up, the gallery set up, and we can work in this really fluid capacity where there's multiple pieces of art in progress, there's multiple client projects running, we've got an exhibition queued up, there's another one on its heels, et cetera, et cetera. And so now we've got that rhythm, which is a rhythm we've been aspiring towards for a few years now. So 
we're stoked on that and that feels really good. It's really exciting to me to hear um, everything y'all have cooking and um, yeah, I love that y'all have been opening up the doors for the first Fridays. I've been to one of those. It was really cool to see the new space. Yeah, thank you so much for offering your your insight and just, uh, yeah, being really honest about how you lead your practices and your lives. And um, it's been great to hear what you had to say. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. I hope you gained something from this episode. The Boulder Artist is created in partnership with the Novo Art District, whose mission is to elevate the arts in Boulder, continue the artistic and economic development in North Boulder, and support and enhance the local community. Take care and catch you next time. Thank you.